0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
2: ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis, the Evening Standard's Chief Theatre Critic. Welcome back to our Theatre Podcast. With me this week is Nick Clark, the Evening Standards Deputy Culture Editor. Hello, Nick. Hi. Coming up, we'll be looking at the world's longest running show, The Mousetrap, which, Nick, you've been researching quite deeply this week.
0: Yes, and I'll tell you why it won't be coming to a cinema screen near you anytime soon.
2: Excellent. But first of all, we're kicking off with the revival of the musical From Here to Eternity at the Charing Cross Theatre. 30. So first up this week we have From Here to Eternity, the musical by Tim Rice and Stuart Brayson, based on the novel by James Jones. They're making it very clear that it's not based on the film, which I think most people will know From Here to Eternity for. It was only staged once before in London back in 2013, I believe. Then revived in America. This is the first London revival, and it's I think it's fair to say it's slightly different to your average enormous West End show. Yes, well.
0: Tim Rice was fairly clear uh, talking to the stage recently about the 2013 production was a bit of a flop and it was in the Shaftesbury Theatre, a 1,400 seater and that it was just just too big really and they've gone completely opposite so they've gone to the Charing Cross Theatre, 265 seats and it feels so much more intimate and that really works for the production, I thought. You know, this was a, a good night at the theatre I mean, we're going to talk about some of the issues uh, probably at length but I found that the, the Trevor set-up basically when the audience on both sides of the stage really helped the staging, really bring you into the story.
2: Yes, it, really, it makes it much more intimate. I mean, those sort of exposed stagings—they don't give them any way to hide. You yes. can't do a—you can't do a sophisticated set. You can't do big effects. It's all about the music and the performances. The and,
1: maybe there.
2: and for me, it was the music that really worked, rather than the performances.
0: I wouldn't say they were totally traditional musical songs. I don't know what really what, what what that is, but uh, what I don't think it is is guitar ballads and some songs which actually. I would have thought, wouldn't look out of place on the set of a boy band. But what I've got to say is that they really had me humming along and tapping my feet. I came out, as many people around me did, saying quite how good the songs were. So basically, if, if you're coming out thinking the music was, was
2: good, I think that's probably the uh, hallmark better. of a good music. There's a, there's a famous old um, Broadway review, I think, about the, the, the audience came out whistling the set. We should probably say a little bit about the plot. It's set on a military base in Hawaii with two parallel romances running in the two weeks before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I think those who have seen the film Uh, will be quite surprised how camp this version is and how much um, of a gay subtext there is to it. How many of the sailors and soldiers on the base are involved going to sort of gay brothels and indeed going to straight brothels, which is something that didn't feature in the film and apparently was expurgated from the original novel. I gather an unexpurgated version was published and that's what Rice based this on. It's interesting, again, it's an untraditional musical. Really, It's about
0: essentially people waiting to fight, waiting to be involved in the war, We as the audience know that very shortly they're going to be very involved, but they don't. And they spend most of the the show really sitting around, getting increasingly tense, fighting, shouting. and, And the problem with that is there isn't a huge amount of jeopardy. I found that when I was watching it, there's a lot of talk about uh, bugling. There's a lot of talk about boxing. The biggest jeopardy is whether Private Pruitt, the lead character, or one of the lead characters, is going to step up and fight for his regiment and get the colonel a promotion.
2: and ultimately, I found myself not really caring about that. Yeah. It's a it's an extended metaphor, isn't it, for American complacency, I think, for them sleepwalking into war, them worrying about these sort of trivial matters, and then suddenly bombs start falling on them.
0: Yeah, it, you could definitely read it like that. I, I think th- there isn't a huge amount of subtext in this. Uh, there, it doesn't delve very deeply into the issues. If you were... Desperately looking for issues, you could talk toxic masculinity and what happens when young men are forced together with nothing to do. You could also look at various um, issues around the army and how the army, if it doesn't actively mistreat some of the young men, it, it abandons them. So there are some issues under under the surface, but as I say, I, I wouldn't say they're dealt with hugely in any depth.
2: I tend to agree. What did you think about the, uh, the two sort of central romances in it? We should maybe clarify that one of the uh, sergeants is having an affair with the um, commanding officer's wife because they have a deeply toxic marriage, which she's desperate to escape from. Uh, meanwhile, Pruitt, the bugler that we and, and non-boxer who we mentioned earlier, is having an affair with a prostitute. He's, sort of, he's obsessed with her, isn't he? I mean, it's, it's not really an affair. She's very clear that it's a professional transaction, but he is sort of besotted yes and it 's
0: clear that they have some uh, knowledge of each other from beforehand, and he's the sort of uh, the the rogue character dropped into the plot to get it going um I think a bit of an issue with this is that neither of the romances really sparked i don 't think there was a huge amount of chemistry between either of the um uh, of the lead romances and i 've got to say that that 's a bit of a problem for the plot so when it the denouement does happen, a series of events that 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 take place, it's very hard to care about what happens in the, in, the, in the Final Reckoning to them. I
2: think it's surprising how young the cast were for this mm. because the actors in the movie are fairly mature. They're in the sort of 30s and 40s. Here they properly look like they could be 20-year-old lads. One of the two male leads who plays Warden, he's a sergeant but his surname is Warden, looked like uh, the sort of love child of Benedict Cumberbatch and, uh, and uh, Will Poulter, I thought. it was an incredible
0: baby face. I was just going to shout out a couple of other people in the in the show. One I thought, um, actually, Eve Policarpo and her song I Know What You Came For was great and another one which I think might be a role that's rather divisive but uh, Johnny Ames I hope I haven't butchered his name he's playing Maggio which is a character that really walks the line between being really funny and really annoying and actually I think he just about pulls it off on the right side of that line so I thought he probably as as one of as, as bringing life to the show that he deserves a bit of a shout out too
2: yes and while we're talking about shouting I actually quite like the shouty sergeant Galovic mm. played by Reece Nuttall um, I, I mean they're a whole sub-genre of fiction aren't they the shouting sadistic sergeant and it's I thought it. he was he was one of the best so I would have uh, I, I would say this is a three star show out of five. Probably Absolutely. it's solid. I think it's um, as you say you come out sort of humming the songs. You're sort of vaguely rooting for the people in the lead, but not that deeply invested in them. So you know it's 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 not an absolute blockbuster night out, but it's a it's an interesting strip back staging which may be reinvents it in a useful way given that it failed first time round even Tim Rice said it failed
0: absolutely and that intimacy of the staging I think really adds an extra layer to it too
2: right let's go to the ads in the second half the world's longest running show The Mousetrap we'll be back after this For our second show this week, we're considering The Mousetrap, as it marks its 70th anniversary next week. Well, what's it about? So seven
0: strangers find themselves snowed in at a country guest house. Essentially, at the beginning, it's a young couple who have just opened their guest house, worse luck, and these seven strangers turn up. We've got to say they're quite archetypal characters. There's not a huge amount of nuance behind them, but they're played with great verve by the actors, I think, and now with a, a, a sort of a knowing nod to the lines because I don't think they've really changed the lines very much I I hear there's been a cut here or there but nothing much so I think the way of doing it in 2022 has been to add a little bit of uh, knowing a knowing wink to the audience but yeah so as these seven characters start to interact uh, dark secrets emerge and it emerges there is a killer in their midst and they start vanishing
2: mm. yes it's interesting they, the characters are sort of like Cluedo characters aren't they except they probably predate Cluedo I imagine yeah. Cluedo <laughs> was ripping off the mousetrap rather than <laughs> vice versa but they are the sort of colonel aren't they yes. and they the young couple as you say And
0: so Agatha Christie may have been the queen of crime but she didn't get everything right because her prediction in her diaries was that the mousetrap would run for 14 months so uh, 68 <laughs> years off that one <laughs> Yeah, wildly out on that one, I think.
2: Um, Nick, you've been talking to a lot of people involved, I believe.
0: Well, yes. Uh, so for for the Evening Standard, we're looking at a feature covering 70 years of The Mousetrap and really wondering what is it about this show, this small radio sketch done by Agatha Christie all those years ago that has become this extraordinary cultural phenomenon? What feels really interesting is that Following uh, the pandemic, when obviously there was an enforced hiatus, it really seems to be back stronger than ever. I was there last week. Audiences absolutely packed out. Um, I think you were there recently as well and again also
2: I, I went immediately after the pandemic because I had never seen it um, I'd been writing about London theatre in one capacity or, or another for um, over three decades and not only had I never seen the mousetrap I'd never been inside the St Martin's theatre because the mousetrap has been running there since before I was born uh, it was a it was a revelation for me to see it um, it was quite an excitement because it was one of the first West End shows to reopen after the pandemic
0: it was the first West End
2: show it was the first West End show and and they, they reopened it then rather interestingly with two different sets of casts, I think, to sort of hit different demographics. So the cast I saw was very much stuffed with the sort of voices of my youth. So Derek Griffiths was playing the military man and hmm. Haley Mills was the older woman in it. And uh, it was just sort of glorious. And they'd star
0: cast it, right? Yeah. which is the first time since it opened when it had Richard Attenborough, yes, in, in one of the lead roles,: Yes, and now they had Danny Mack and uh, <laughs> Cassidy Jensen and people yes, like that that's right, um, but the producer Adam Spieger was um, really interested. I mean, they, they gave it a great spruce. The set looks great, yep. uh, the marketing looks much better, and they really lean heavily into the history now, yes. be part of the history, get involved, come along, can you solve it? Yep. And I found that when I was there. There were selfies in front of the blue plaque outside. There's this board with all the number of performances that have taken place. So my night was twenty eight thousand eight hundred eighty five, and I figure that must be the most selfie board in theatreland. <laughs> I
2: think you're probably right. And they do. I think you get a programme and they stamp your programme with the performance Absolutely. number as well, which is, I think was a lovely, charming thing, which I wasn't expecting. One of my predecessors, Nicholas Jong, I remember seem to remember in the past had a long-standing campaign to get them to let him in to re-review it because they were still running the original review from 1952 from the Evening Standard outside. Um, I can't remember whether he was successful or not. And and I don't know how one would even review The Mousetrap now. Um, I mean, if you were giving it a star rating, what would you give it? Uh, I could give it anything from... Wow, one to five. Who
0: knows? Take your pick. It's got too much baggage, really. I think,
2: I think seventy stars yeah. <laughs> on its seventieth anniversary for the Mousetrap. Absolutely. Um, I'm not usually into heritage theatre, but I was really quite pleasantly surprised by uh, how dark it is. For one thing, that um, at its at its heart, it's it's a story of. of um, of child abuse or, you know, historically child abuse is what drives the plot. So yes, I mean, I I think it's good to be reminded of how how radical Christie was in lots of ways. Well, I think
0: if we we think back to when it opened in 1952, it was a contemporary play. If you think 70 years on, it is a heritage piece, but it speaks to some sort of nostalgic Britishness that maybe you can't get live anywhere else. Um, But it goes out on tour around the UK and sells out there as well. So
1: Mm.
0: I think people who love... David Sushi and Poirot would love this as well. I think yes. it just keeps bringing people, whether domestically or internationally, because it looks back to, to a Britishness that, that actually Agatha Christie was writing contemporaneously. Yes. Which is very interesting. But if you think of how society's changed since then, yes. it's extraordinary that it survived. I think
2: its closest rival might be The Fantastics in New York, which I think has been running since the 60s. But, uh, but that's still, you know, nothing to touch the Mousetrap really. And
0: everyone's heard of it. It's, yes. I think the fact that Poirot isn't the protagonist or Miss Marple isn't the protagonist is actually good for the play because the play is the thing. The name people know the name of the mousetrap. Yeah. If it was any number of poirot, you wouldn't know which Agatha Christie it was, but you'd know that it was a Poirot. Yes. So I think there's something everyone knows that Theatre equal or Mousetrap equals Theatreland and Theatreland equals mousetrap. And of course the
2: lovely in-joke in it is the title comes from Hamlet. You know, the play that Hamlet puts to trap his uncle is called The Mousetrap in in Hamlet, the play within the play. So I think, you know, Christy was oper- operating quite often on many more levels than we sometimes give her credit.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned the darkness. I mean, she doesn't shy away from darkness in her novels. It's something that probably now she is often seen as quite twee, again, because of her longevity, much as the mousetrap has been. But actually, when you experience it firsthand, yes. you realize there's a lot, a lot, many more, there are many more layers in it.
2: And it's become a sort of cultural icon now, hasn't it? it a has. touchstone. And it's never been filmed, which is extraordinary. No, because there's a clause
0: inserted into the rights for it that the film could only ever be made six months after the play closed. Wow, that's amazing. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary thing because it obviously gets referenced and pastiched all over the place. One that really sticks out to me is uh, the Toast of London episode, The Moose Trap, uh, <laughs> in which possibly referencing some years ago where... The auditorium was half full and uh, the, even the actors on stage were falling asleep, uh, which I can tell you is not <laughs> how it is now. Uh, but also See How They Run, which was uh, a, a major film released this year, which is a, a pastiche on detective fiction Agatha Christie stories itself and is set within the world of The Mousetrap and a director who gets killed backstage. But it is not actually an adaptation of The Mousetrap because, as we know, they cannot make the film for six months and
2: one of the good things about them not making the film is that theoretically still nobody has revealed who the murderer is at the end. It's supposed to be the best kept secret in theatre land, certainly.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to stay We're going
2: to stay stum. This has been the Evening Standards Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. And I'm Nick Clark. It's been great having you on the show. It's been great being part
0: of uh, Theatre's second Nick and Nick partnership.
2: Excellent. Let's go forward. You can find us online at standard.co.uk forward slash culture or hashtag The Leader Podcast on Twitter. The Leader Podcast will be back tomorrow from 4pm and we'll see you again next Sunday for a brand new episode.